Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine, and we have for you a pretty incredible guest today. Her name is Dr. Anne Maitland. She is an allergist and immunology specialist. She is an assistant professor at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and is the medical director of comprehensive allergy and asthma care in Terrytown, New York. She earned her MD and PhD from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and has been in practice for over 20 years. She knows what she's talking about. Oh, and I don't know if my daughter would agree with that statement, <laughs> but I appreciate the generous and gracious introduction. <laughs> oh yeah, you. I, what you know is pretty incredible, and you serve on the AAAAI community for mast cell mediated disorders and the committee for the unmet need. So this is going to be a deep dive conversation into mast cell disorders, the immune system, the T cells, B cells, the innate immune system, the mast cells, and let's roll. Welcome. We're so happy to have no, you. No, I'm delighted for the invitation. So let's dive in. Let's. What we've talked about on this show before is kind of these two arms of the immune system, like the right. innate, which is the nonspecific and the quick, relatively quick, and then the adaptive, which is like the slow and more specific. Can we talk a little bit more about these components of some of the cells within those two arms? So first of all, one of your specialties and one of the things we work with a lot in the clinic is mast cell disorders. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about mast cells specifically, like what are they and what are they there for? Why are they not only trouble? You know, mast cells are an, an amazing cell population that no one learned about uh, when they were training. You know, I was at one of the few programs in the country that actually had in-house allergy immunology faculty. And even then, it was only two lectures the first year of medical school. These cells were originally identified back in the 1800s, one of the first immune cells ever identified. And it was uh, the uh, thoughtfulness of a gentleman who actually faced a lot of uphill struggles to get his work recognized, where he took uh, dyes that were used to make textiles for the German nobility, threw them on tissue and lit up these cells all throughout the body. He had no idea what they did, but he knew that they were important because they were also found in all types of animals. So it was found, you know, fish, amphibians. And so clearly these cells had something to do before the quote unquote allergy epidemic. Um, unfortunately, uh, the first job that was identified for these mast cells really was in 1989. Well, um, yeah. Big um, jump. Big jump, 100 years later. I mean, they, they knew they had heparin, they knew they had histamine, but they really still didn't have an idea of what these cells did. And what's a really fascinating story, because I grew up in New York City, uh, Thomas Platts Mills, who's a phenomenal allergy immunology specialist at the University of Virginia, gave a, a conversation about the atopic march or allergy epidemic. And he noted that in New York City, Ed Koch was about to announce asthma as the number one health hazard in the city until nearly 900 people died from AIDS. So you had two major immune disorders that were becoming pandemics at the same time. And you can imagine the attention went to 
fighting the AIDS epidemic. Um, but that, that fight led to a huge amount of information about the immune system. So the T cells and the B cells dominated the picture because that was the original target identified by the virus. But at the same time, food allergies started becoming a problem, asthma started becoming a problem, atopic dermatitis, and it just crept up. And so as the research thank God, transformed AIDS from a death sentence to you can live with this, we started to see uh, the impact of this other epidemic. And basically, the only research up to that time, like 90% of the research was what do mast cells do in allergies? It's kind of like, you know, people wanted to get rid of mast cells. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't even know what these cells do. We just know that this is the one thing that they do. And then they started by a decade after that observation, they started to realize, hmm, mast cells might play a role in reproduction and tissue repair. And so these cells essentially have four really essential roles. And to point out how important these cells are, you could be born without T cells. It might not be a great existence, but you, you can be born without T cells and B cells. You cannot be born without mast cells, period. And so these mast cells, not only are they important for, for tissue defense, but helping to coordinate tissue repair. And then they participate in reproduction. Think about how women going in or out of their menstrual cycle will have worsening migraines, uh, worsening asthma, that mast cells might be, are probably leading the charge there. And they also play a role in blood flow, you know, because they have the ability to release not only heparin, but platelet activating factor. So these cells, as a person who studied T cells in the context of HIV infection, I had to, which was helpful for me to try to understand what mast cells are doing, but mast cells sit at the interface of how our bodies see the world. One gentleman, um, one philosopher called it autopoetic, like you have to learn how to respond to the various changes that happen, not only outside of your body, but inside. And so as we started to see all the different types of receptors that mast cells express and all the different chemicals that mast cells can release, it seems like the mast cells are like the, the maestro of the immune system, right at the interface of how we breathe, you know, what we ingest, how our skin interacts with the environment. You know, eating, uh, Breathing and sex and making babies. That's pretty much like what life is life. <laughs> I won't, I, I'll keep my day job. I won't sing, but. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the differences between T and B cells? And then we can kind of start trying. So, so, so. I'm of course a little bit biased. I always thought T cells were like the captains of the immune system. Uh -huh. um, so you have it. They've been basically broken down to there are lots of different types of T cells. First of all, so you have the T helper cells. Those were the, the the cells that were originally identified as the target of HIV infection, but it was shown later that HIV impacts other cells. And they're the ones who kind of interact with the B cells to say, okay, what kind of antibody should you make um, after you see this bacteria or this virus um, or this substance? Understand antibodies, which are made by B cells, and the word B actually comes from the term bursa. So from chickens, which is connective tissue. So there's another tie-in between the connective tissue and the immune system. So that's kind of like a specialized production plant. And so the T cells and the B cells are, are kind of called in after there's some type of a tissue injury or change pattern. 
And you have the front responders or the first line responders, which is the epithelium, which has some intrinsic abilities to help defend itself, kind of like a, a border surrounding a city that has like, you know, an electri- electrified fence or something. And then you have the guards on the wall, you know, and mast cells, dendritic cells are also there. Uh, so they're the ones that have all those sensors to try to figure out what might be coming in. Are you safe or not safe? And because mast cells have these really potent chemicals, you don't want those chemicals out there willy-nilly. You know, it's kind of like having that security guard on the wall. You don't want them pulling out their gun and shooting if it's just somebody who's looking for directions. So, so. <laughs> There's so, a lot we could unpack about that. But <laughs> So mast cells are the ones, in my opinion, that kind of tell the T cells and B cells what kind of danger is being perceived and what kind of response you should make. Should I make memory? to this virus? Should I, should I make antibodies in T cells that can recognize hepatitis or streptococcus pneumoniae or dengue fever? You know, you want, you want that memory because, you know, it's it, like the difference between having no antibodies and antibodies. This is kind of like having the stick figure versus a telephoto lens shot uh-huh. of somebody who committed some type of crime. And so in many ways, Antibodies are like mugshots. It's just a question of the quality of the mugshot. And as you can imagine, sometimes those mugshots are innocent individuals. Um, And so that's, then we start crossing into, did tissue damage lead to an autoimmune disorder? Like, did you start making antibodies against yourself because you kept on having tissue injury and the immune system was like, danger, danger, Will Robinson. And just, you know, after a while, the stress is so, so high that you're not going to care that, oh, that was my thyroid. <laughs> so, <laughs> Is this kind of like the more stress that the body's under, the more quickly or the less carefully the, the mugshot is made? And that's how we end up targeting the good guys who we mistake for the bad guys? Well, think about it. You know, if, you're, if your body is constantly stressed, you're consuming a lot of energy away from the daily maintenance, the daily wear and tear, and shifting it to an, a, you're willing to contribute resources and energy to fight off something that's going to cause you to have sepsis or cellulitis or pneumonia. But you shouldn't be willing to de- take that energy away from your daily functioning to go after your thyroid or, or go after pollen. You know, so those are hypersensitivity responses. So the question is, and what's really interesting just having an antibody does not guarantee that you have an autoimmune disorder or hypersensitivity disorder. It has to be a, a, thank God, a two hit, you know, so there has to be some type of injury or perceived injury. And then you have to have the receptor recognize in the context of that danger, what it is. So for instance, I can go out right now and test a hundred people for IgE to peanut. Mm -hmm. Out of those 100 people, I'll find 15 that have a positive test. Do they all have peanut allergy? No, only a third of them do. And how do you know? You ask them. God forbid you actually, you know, (laughs) ask a few questions. So we know there are plenty of people that have positive antibody tests, whether it's a positive ANA or a positive antibody to milk, and don't have any clinically obvious symptoms or syndromes. But if that person has some type of a stress, like, you know, pollution, a physical trauma, like a motor vehicle accident or surgery, if they get a major infection like Lyme or, or, or pneumonia, 
then the immune system goes on guard, you know, goes up to a higher alert. And it might not necessarily care that it's your joint or your brain. Uh, I can tell you, um, I'm probably on my way to mouse hell because of all the mice (laughs) I had to kill to get my PhD. But I can make a mouse allergic to cheese. And how I did that would be I would expose it to some type of a toxin or physical trauma. And then I would apply the cheese to that site. Immune system comes in. Collateral bystander damage. So when we think about something being a toxin or something being safe, what I'm hearing you say, and I just want to kind of call this out, is that it is way more subjective than science would have us originally believe. And what that means is that when we talk about things that help the perception, the perceptual aspect of our subjective being. So we talk about Gupta program, we talk about meditation, breath work, IV ketamine therapy, um, hypnotherapy, all those components that make us, lead us to feel safe, we can actually develop a sense of safety within a somewhat toxic world and be okay. We can have an allergy to peanuts, but not actually react to peanuts based on our system. Correct. Think, Think about Kung Fu, you know, the gentleman's tied down in the middle of the road. He's able, with his mind alone, take his body into a space that's protective to all the outside insults that he must be experiencing. So, but then the flip side, the tricky part is that, you know, so many of the patients who struggle with mast cell activation, long COVID, all these components have have been told by the medical system to meditate their way out of this, especially these, this high percentage of folks who will have neuropsychiatric symptoms. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that component of it? Again, it takes two to tango. So you need to remove yourself from the insult, right? At the same time, telling your body, stand, start standing down. So we typically, I think Western medicine, unlike Eastern medicine, has a tendency to do, you know, the magic bullet approach, as opposed to understand that this is a dynamic situation uh, between your body negotiating the environment. And so there are definitely changes in the body. And then there's definitely changes in the environment, moment to moment. You breathe 18 times per minute. You swallow one to two times per minute, which increases. And uh, your skin is always exposed to the environment. Is, is your skin the same all, that entire time? No. Is your respiratory tract the same? No. And what are the things that can influence that? So I have a, a collaborative effort um, with two other phenomenal individuals. Well, actually, there are a lot of phenomenal individuals, and I look forward <laughs> to working with you as well where you still need to hydrate, you still need to bring in nutrients, you still need to excrete waste products. You have to make sure those organs are being given the energy and the ability to do so as you're trying to meditate, right? And so so that helps reduce the stress. Does it completely eliminate it? No, because your body's still sensing that there's been injury. You can't meditate a gunshot wound away. But, you know, think about the role of prayer, right? Mm -hmm. And that has been discounted time and time again. But it's been shown that if people have something, a sense of purpose and a a sense of something that's bigger than than the situation that they have, they have a much stronger likelihood of negotiating that next bump in the road with efficacy and effectiveness. And so I think it's important, like what we do in our practice, we partner with nutrition, we partner with, with, um, we have Ayurvedic partners and traditional Chinese herbal medicine partners. I use acupuncture and acupressure. And and here's a a good point regarding connective tissue disorders. If you look at where some of the acupuncture points are, 
you can see that there's a cluster of mast cells near those nerve points. Interestingly enough, depending on, you can actually, for instance, a lot of Asian cultures will use acupuncture for analgesia even during operations, right? So if you put chromalin, which is a mast cell stabilizer, at the site of where you place that acupuncture needle, you will interfere with the analgesic effect. So, you know, it's that yin-yang Right. And you need to be able to, and the appreciation that I now have for Eastern medicine is that, you know, one person's floor and one person's ceiling, it all depends, you know, so it's a push-pull and you have to understand where you are in that push-pull in order to counter it, right, in order to get that wellness part. And so I I would have to say that you can't just take an elixir and hope that you're going to feel better. You can't just meditate. You need to also address where your body is in that state and recognize that and then try to optimize it. And it really is a day-to-day experience. But unfortunately, our current modern culture is an on-demand diagnosis and an on-demand treatment. And that's just not going to work for the the amount of chronic disorders, which is going to either involve the nervous system the immune system, or the connective tissue. You've talked a little bit about the mast cells being at acupressure, acupuncture points along the skin. Where do these all, how do these all interact within the connective tissue? And and can you back up one step and just kind of like list what is connective tissue? Because it's more than just... No, it's the brick and mortar of our body. Think about, it's like your house, you know, it's like, okay, what materials make up your house, right? (laughs) And individuals that have connective tissue disorders, my patients will tell you, I'll use this very innocent analogy of, you know, the three little pigs, right? So you can have a house of straw, you can have a house of brick, and you can have a house of mud, you know, so... Thatch might work really well in Hawaii, but ain't going to do very well in the Bronx. So the genes that you've inherited, and, and we've had a lot of mobility of cultures, right? The genes that we've inherited weren't made to pivot so quickly. And the living environment that we've been in has changed dramatically within 50 years. So you have the connective tissue. So we all have about 75 square feet of collagen and the networks that build you know, the skin and the gut and the respiratory tract that's exposed to the environment in an adult. Embedded in that connective tissue, kind of like in your house, you got plumbing. So there's the vasculature, right? And it's also part of connective tissue. You got electrical, there's your nervous system, right? And welcome to New York, you got to have a security system too. Matter of fact, it's a superintendent, you know, he does a little security and he does a little repair at the same time. (laughs) And so our body is kind of like a living remodeling system all the time. And it is a, a, a constant dynamic communication between the connective tissue and the structures that sense the outside environment and the inside environment in order to maintain an adequate amount of water, maintain temperature at a certain rate, excrete waste products, make sure you have enough glucose and salts. That homeostasis is is what all the connective tissue, the nervous system and the immune system is trying to maintain at a a rate uh, that is maintaining your, your health and vitality. If you start having ongoing insults, essentially, you're going to start acclimating up or down. Well, if insults, you're going to acclimate down. Exercise and good nutrition, you might acclimate up. So your homeostatic set point can change. And so where T cells and B cells come in. So the mast cells, again, mast cells have the ability to influence other structures. For instance, they release enzymes like tryptase that can modify the connective tissue. So if you get a puncture wound, you need to loosen it up a little bit 
what do you think is loosening it up a little bit? And then you have redness. So now you have stuff leaking out of the blood vessels. What do you think is responsible for calling that in? <laughs> and then you have pain or itch. Again, so the communication between the mast cells and the nerves saying something's wrong with this finger right here where I got a paper cut. Huh? So, so that's the initiating change. Now, what if you need backup? This is where the T-cells and B-cells come in. So mast cells have different degranulation patterns, and they also have different secretion patterns. For instance, what's happening, and this might be jumping a little bit ahead, but coronavirus is able to bind to the epithelium and cause tissue damage. By binding the epithelium and causing tissue damage, mast cells are like, wake up, something's going on. They have the ability to secrete, not degranulate, secrete chemicals that can call in T-cells, can call in macrophages, can uh, call in complement to say, we need more help because something's going on here. And what we find in adults, one, four out of five adults are able to coordinate a sufficient innate immune response to contain that virus. One out we, of five, one out of five can't. And those are the ones that have problems. That? How do we know that? Yeah. Um, so they have looked at the studies, both Europe and Asia and here have actively trying to understand what is going on in, in the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And there's some wonderful articles in the Atlantic and more recently in the New Yorker that talk about how the immune system has been co-opted. No different than HIV. Coronavirus has co-opted the immune system. And let's look at the dynamics, uh, if you don't mind me going into the coronavirus issue, because I think no, this is important. So coronavirus, you can see that there are three very different patterns of infection and the outcome of those infections age-related. So under 18, you hardly see disease, right? Yeah. Connective tissue, mast cells, nerves, right? You have a few rare cases unfortunately, of people who have uh, children that have this like Kawasaki's-like vasculitic picture. But for the most part, children are spared. Great carriers of the virus, but they're spared. Then you have the 18 to 65, where four out of five of them mount a sufficient enough innate immune response. And they've shown this in studies, mobilized sufficient to contain the virus. And that can happen within the five to 19 days. It's the one out of five that don't have a productive innate immune response. And what is that? That's the mast cells, the dendritic cells, and then the macrophages that get called in. So what's going on there, we don't know. But we do know is if we can augment that innate immune response, which is what vaccines do. So that's the vaccine, that's the vaccine experts' dirty little secret. They have co-opted substances that they know engage the innate immune system to optimize not only the innate immune response, but the adaptive immune response. And what is the adaptive immune response? T-cells and B-cells. So T-cells and B-cells come in afterwards to bring in the sharpshooters. It's kind of like your police officers get called in 911. They're like, oh, this is a really bad situation. We need the SWAT team. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> in comes, you know, <laughs> five zero. Yeah. You know, so and you know, a lot of patients tease me, like, you know, were you former police? I'm like, no, I just watched a lot of, you know, 007 and <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But that's essentially what's happening. It's like you have to have an initial response, and if if the immune system is able to contain it, like in the kids, mm -hmm. right? Because they're making antibody responses, but they're not getting sick. So what is it? And then the elderly, yeah. and, and what's really interesting, and this is what I've asked a couple of researchers in the mast cell world. We know that kids that have a mast cell tumor called urticaria pigmentosa, if they get it early, 
the tumor completely regresses by the time they're 18, despite the mutation. So we know there's a difference in the biology in mast cells in under 18, between 18 to 65. And then the immune system, just like our seniors, becomes senescent. And so that might make them more at risk for not having a brisk innate immune response and making them much more susceptible. And if you look at the statistics, morbidity and mortality is much higher in over 75. So let me just repeat kind of what I'm hearing, make sure I got it straight. So if we look at an immune response to kind of any trigger, but especially because coronavirus is up, we're going to talk about coronavirus, that we think about it, you know, everybody's like, do you have antibodies? Um, every, all the conversation is around antibodies or giving people antibodies. But what we're talking about, what you're saying is that the mast cells and especially the innate immune, as part of the innate immune system, play a huge role. And that differentiates yes. those three age groups so that mast cells, which so. are, the, you know, mast cells haven't had a chance to kind of like lose their perspective in children because they just haven't had enough time on the planet with like sunburns to, you know, change DNA, those things. So maybe, maybe the mast cells are active and intelligent enough to kind of contain everything, all the symptoms right. that it, between 18 and 65, starting to change it starts to shift and one out of five people kind of have gone downhill right which antibodies won't explain but components of the innate immune system will because unlike antibodies where we have 10 to the 10th diversity right and think about when they started getting serums um, from people to give to other individuals who are suffering yeah. from really high morbidity what did they have to do they had to get a high enough titer because it was a gamish so how do you increase the number of happy helpful antibodies as opposed to ones that might not even be, not only not be helpful, may facilitate entry of the virus into healthy cells. And so what are the T cells doing here? T cells are helping coordinate the, the first of all, they have the ability to attack uh, infected cells, right? And they also have the ability to coordinate antibody responses. So B cells, when we think about B cells and antibodies, you know, those are kind of like, they raise one flag or they raise, they're a sharpshooter for like one target, right? Like one Correct. antibody, one target. They 10 to the 10th, 10 to the 10th. <laughs> they are a lot of them. Well, but you're a T cell biologist. Right. And they have T cell receptors are as diverse and complicated as the immunoglobulin receptors and the antibody receptors, the antibodies yeah. themselves. And so there's a lot of different antibodies. Yeah. And so T cells, we've got like, those are CD4 and CD8 cells, like with HIV. Right. And, and those CD17. Are I mean, there's, there's a TH17. There are a lot of different types of T cells. And the, the information about the, the different T cell subsets mm -hmm. is much more well-researched than the mast cell subsets. Right now, mast cells have really been broken down by, you know, location, whether they have chymase, which is another enzyme that is very potent in modifying the connective tissue. Um, and really, and that, and that's it, really. It's just location and whether they have chymase. Other than that, really haven't done the amount of phenotyping like CD4, CD8. And by the way, CD4, CD8 terms came out of the HIV epidemic before they had different names. And so, so the Asia, here you have a pandemic that drove a huge influx of effort to kind of uh, better understand the immune system. And so just what like HIV did for the adaptive immune system, I believe coronavirus is going to do for the innate immune system, meaning better understanding of what the different components of the innate immune system is. Because right now, what you hear is the innate immune system and antibodies. The immune system is a heck of a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> You've eliminated all of the T cells. 
in that conversation. And here's the thing. We just don't know that much about the innate immune system. I'll be frank. You know, you bring up compliment to, to an immunologist and it's almost like a deer in headlights. It's a really complicated system. And, and if you think about antibodies, what do we think about them in the context of vaccines, autoimmune disease, right? And allergy. That's the only context that we really think about it. And so there are so many different types of antibodies that can be generated to just one single substance. Like you and, making a mouse allergic to cheese. Like you, that now you've got an antibody for cheese. I've got an antibody for cheese. IgE. IgE. Not IgG. IgE, yes. Antibody E, not antibody G. It's so complicated. I'm like, I have to tell you, I was grateful that I got a PhD in immunology when I took my allergy immunology boards because they were asking questions. Like, it's a completely, it's like me learning French. <laughs> it's a completely different language. And not even French you know, Arabic, I mean, because it's so foreign and it's so complicated and you have so many different characters that we're not accustomed to thinking about. You know, so you have CD4, you have CD4 positive T cells and they're naive T cells and memory T cells. Same thing for the B cells. You have natural killer cells. You have natural killer T cells. They all have different jobs. Think about all the different defenses that we have in this country. You got the Coast Guard. You got, you know, yes. the, <laughs> you got Border Patrol. You got, you know, state police. Oh, yeah. You've got police. building security. Yeah, you've building got security. Neighborhood watch groups. You've got the whole, the whole and thing. All in order to maintain the peace. So this is interesting. So this is making me feel better about how my practice has evolved over the last 10 years, where when I was originally doing functional medicine, I did a lot of food allergy testing. But over the years, what I've realized is that there are so many different ways that we can respond to food that mm -hmm. just checking an IgE, like an allergist typically does, doesn't really get it much. Just exactly. checking IgG or IgA still doesn't get as much. Nope. What I typically do now and I'll only do it sometimes in certain situations, but I'll do this MRT, this mediator release uh -huh. test, which is a lymphocytic test for food allergies, right. because uh -huh. that really looks at the innate responses to food, Correct. Um, but knowing that it's still limited. And I still have patients that bring me, you know, the IgG test that they did 20 years ago. And they say, well, you know, I haven't eaten an almond in 20 years because my test says I'm allergic. And what we know is that the immune system is so dynamic. I think right. of food allergy testing is accurate for about six months, six to 18 months. And whatever we do, if sometimes people say, get, just give me a list. And I think, all right, well, we'll temporarily decrease the reactivity of your immune system by taking right. these foods out, but that it's dynamic. It's going to change. And this is not a complete list. There's a lot of limitations to food allergy testing. But I would have to say the issues with food allergies kind of emulate what's going on in society today, right? Meaning tolerance never comes from avoidance, never. So you have to engage. It's just a question of the basis of the engagement. And so, I, and so I'll give you a, a story where I had a patient whose son was allergic to all the tree nuts and they're of Eastern Asian heritage, which is very important in the diet. And, and, and having a food intolerance or allergy really impacts one's social life in so many ways. And so, so she came to me like 10 years ago um, and said, my sister is a doctor. I have an EpiPen at home. Would you be against me desensitizing my son at home using almond soup? Like I'll boil some almonds and I'll just start them on a drop and then I'll just increase it every day. And I'm like, I can't sign off on it. 
<laughs> With a wink. <laughs> uh-huh. But um, I can say that there are practitioners that do that. And six months later, he was completely tolerant to 10 almonds. So again, it's not just about the antibody. Mm-hmm. It's about the individual. Where is that individual Right. And it's much yeah. easier to induce tolerance if the body is not stressed. So here's where the meditation and the neural retraining and the acupuncture and acupressure. But you also want to make sure that the borders are intact. I'm more allopathic, but I'm starting to appreciate functional medicine. The term leaky gut as a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about leaky brain? <laughs> it just keeps going. I know. I'm like, but it's all about barriers. Right. And so, look, you can meditate all day long, but if your house is being shot at and there are holes in it that that allows the elements to come in, you can't think that's not going to impact you. So if you still have ongoing insults to your barriers, whether it's your skin or your gut or your respiratory tract or your urogenital tract, that is going to raise the alarm of the local cells, which will then, if it goes on long enough, it'll start saying something's wrong here. I need help, which is what happens with coronavirus. Something's wrong here. I need help. And one out of five adults, that help comes in, not like, you know, just one or two, you know, other officers in the area. It comes in like gangbusters and that hyper-inflammatory COVID storm that people are talking about. And that's what happens with people with allergies. Like our bodies are so exposed to chemicals that we're not accustomed to. You know, I think about growing up in the Bronx where we lived in a semi-detached house, right? You know, it was, it was dense, but not crazy. But there was only one car per family. Milk was still delivered to the back doors in glass bottles. You went into a market, not a supermarket. You went into a market and there was seasonal foods that were available that was packaged in either glass, paper, or can, right? So do you remember the movie, The Graduate? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dustin Hoffman's character got advice from the next door neighbor and he said, plastic. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to think that individually wrapped and plastic and, you know, polyester of the late 70s and 80s and supersizing everything brought huge exposure to chemicals that our bodies just were not accustomed to. You know, seriously, even clothing. What was clothing mostly made out of? Cotton, silk, animal hide. Right. And what do a lot of these patients have problems with? They have, you know, mixed fibers, you know. Uh, And so what we eat, what we wear, the walls that we live in, which Mm -hmm. and here's another thing growing up in the Bronx, I can tell you, you could hardly find me in my house. We spent 50% of our time outdoors easily. The average American now spends 95% of their, 90 to 95% of their time inside something. And that's probably even worse with coronavirus. So you're in your home, you're in your workplace, you're in your school, you're in your indoor playground. (laughs) You're in your screen. You're not even necessarily by a window anymore. No, no. I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking coronavirus is like, you know, the forerunner into, into the matrix. I'm like, yeah. okay. <laughs> oh my. I, I can't tell. You, I was so excited going outside shoveling. I'm like, oh, this is great. Yes. Yeah. Um, literally, you know, the materials that make up our homes all mm-hmm. have been completely transformed in less than a half a century. But I would say 30 years. 
And especially we talk about, you know, with the mold epidemic in the Mm eighties was when buildings became very sealed. Everything's coated in Tyvek now. So it's such a damn good moisture barrier, but we make moisture in the house by breathing. And so where does that go? It just grows mold in our walls. Right. And this is all human made. You know, and and we know that's the case because, you know, I had the pleasure of traveling to China uh, two years ago. And guess who's now facing a huge allergy and asthma epidemic? In less than 10 years, they have doubled the incidence of, of hypersensitivity disorders, which goes with their rate of modernization of their society. You're so good with those statistics. Can you list off some of those statistics about asthma and allergy? So what's really interesting is that we don't have really good statistics about asthma because we don't screen for asthma. Pediatricians don't screen for asthma. Internists, we're not taught to do that. We wait for them to have an asthma attack. So it's now estimated that there's about 35 million that have asthma in this country, which is about one out of 11. Not small. Definitely higher in certain communities. And this is definitely a socioeconomic issue that's tied to communities of color because unfortunately, it's not to say that white communities are not impacted by this, but it's worse in underrepresented minorities, uh, minorities, uh, communities of color. So inflammation of the nose and sinuses is the number two reason for absenteeism from work. One out of four kids, one out of three adults, easily. Urticaria impacts one out of five sometimes. So just having hives come out of nowhere, one out of five, lifetime risk. Food allergy, easily the percentage has doubled within the past 10 years. And now other foods are being impacted. Like, you know, now you're starting to see sesame (laughs) join the list. Um, And the most disturbing fact, in 2014, they did an anaphylaxis in America study and one out of 50 Americans at some point have been treated for anaphylaxis. Well, when we have the ability to go into a room (laughs) that has 100 people, easily two people have been treated and many more are carrying epinephrine auto-injectors for the risk. So clearly, we have flipped the page from infectious disorders, which was the major form of morbidity and mortality 100 years ago, to chronic hypersensitivity disorders, both immediate allergies and delayed autoimmune disorders within, since I would say the 70s. Just because there's some people out there who may have heard about the hygiene hypothesis, And I'm just curious if you can kind of give us an encapsulation of current perspective of that. The immune system has always been engaged. Think about it. We have 10 times the amount of microbiota than we have sitting on our surface areas than we have cells in our body. Mm -hmm. Your immune system has always been engaged with that. So now you just take it away like that. You really think that the immune system is going to stand down? And some of those chemicals that are in our foods in the perfumes and the cleaning agents, in the walls that, you know, or the new cars that, you know, off gas or the flooring that you got from some manufacturer that had too much formaldehyde in them, all are chemically sensitizing the tissue. And then you add on pollen or mold or milk or peanut or sesame. The immune system is already engaged because of the chemical and the temperature changes. And then you put in these harmless substances, it's off. So it's not just the hygiene hypothesis, because I can tell you that the highest rate of asthma in New York City is in communities like Harlem, where you have, it's about four square miles and 300,000 people. It's kind of hard to have, you know, and you walk down the street, you know, like near 
110th Street, and there's some some critters that are bigger than cats. So, so like, I'm like, okay. Um, and then actually, um, I, I can tell you, a, a study from NYU that just got released shows that the pollution in the metro stations is one of the worst, you know, and a lot of these subterranean, the air quality is horrible. And so you have a, a combination. Remember I had to I had to traumatize the mouse? Well, we're being traumatized by the air we breathe, the food that we ingest, and the clothing we wear and the homes that we live in. Uncon you know, we just it's not blatant. And that that chemical or temperature insult is waking up the immune system. And then once you wake up the mast cell, it's hardwired to recognize usual suspects. So it could be bad, but it could be good bacteria that it's going to go after or viruses or or chemicals that are either manufactured such as febreze uh, not if anyone y'all need breeze i apologize and or naturally occurring like what you find in foods so so originally the hygiene hypothesis was the idea that you know in too a clean. yeah too clean. too clean there was too clean so we didn't get kids enough in the dirt and then they started overreact but what ha you're but saying ha is it has to be both it both. has to, it's both you want this immune system that is designed to respond to danger like that right mm -hmm. it's kind of like having a standing army at peace eventually they're going to start doing things that they shouldn't so if you're going to use the hygiene hypothesis, I would have to say it's the modified hygiene hypothesis. You've taken away items that can engage your immune system to keep them properly educated on what is the true danger, would be my opinion. If we're thinking about kind of the T cells as commanders or the T cells slash B cells as kind of the intelligent unit or the sharpshooters, how much intelligence, like how much decision-making do mast cells do? Are they just, do they blindly respond to a threat or do they, no. how do they pick? They have the ability, they have receptors that can detect tissue damage. They're called alarmins. So again, using the coronavirus as an example, the coronavirus attaches to a receptor on the nose and sinus epithelium, starts injuring that tissue. This injured stuff goes out, mast cells detect it. It's kind of like, you know, your home security system being triggered. Once that's triggered, mast cells will investigate with the various receptors that they have. So if they have a receptor, if they've been poked and they have a receptor that recognizes something, they will release their chemicals. So mast cell activation disorders is really about differential chemical release. You know, so are you putting hist? And here's the thing, mast cell not all mast cell degranulation events, or sorry, not all mast cell activation events in involve releasing histamine or, or heparin or tryptase. And, um, and I think that's what makes it very hard to identify individuals that have mast cell activation disorders because you, you can't necessarily catch the release of those chemicals because you only want them out there when you need them, right? Yeah. You don't want heparin out there, you know, because yeah. I actually had a patient who had anaphylaxis that was complicated with disseminated intravascular coagulation, yeah. meaning he started to clot and bleed at the same time. You know, so so, and you don't want tryptase and chymase out there willy-nilly because they clip. Matter of fact, um, Dr. Theoharis Theoharides equates those enzymes as meat tenderizers. So if you want to make yourself loosey-goosey, which is what we've identified with one person. So going back to the connective tissue disorder st story, yeah. Josh Milner, uh, who was at National Institutes of Health, I was interested in the genetics of allergies. And he identified a gene that was found in mast cells, tryptase. And he found families that had inherited 
increased copy number of that enzyme. So they had more tryptase. So instead of carrying a, a six shooter, they had an AK-47 of tryptase in, in each mast cell. Behaving like a sharpshooter, but with an AK-47. With AK-47, autom- you know, full, okay. you know, like extra, extra load of, ah! <laughs> right? But what was really interesting is these individuals were found to have, quote unquote, three debilitating disorders. They were found to have a form of hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. They were found to have dysautonomia and they were found to have mass activation disorder. So here you have a mutation in a mast cell that's impacting the connective tissue, impacting the nervous system and impacting the immune system. Blowing my mind again. (laughs) (laughs) So because we do see in this what we call around here kind of the septad, right? So craniocervical instability or tethered cord, mm-hmm. mast cell activation, hypermobility, GI stuff with either gastroparesis or SIBO, mm-hmm. autoimmune disease, chronic infections, and then dysautonomia. You know, that that's kind so, of the... So I would simplify it down. Yeah. I would say it's the triad. Uh-huh. You have dysregulation of the connective tissue, which uh-huh. can predispose to cervical spine instability and tethered cord, right? You have dysregulation of the immune system that can either make you susceptible to hypersensitivity in the form of classic mast cell disorders, such as, you know, blowing up after eating a peanut, or delayed hypersensitivity disorders, such as autoimmune disorders, right? And then it also can predispose you to neurological issues because, again, the mast cells and the nerves talk to each other all the time. So by taking it out to more than the triad, you're really talking about various versions of of the triad as opposed to, because, so the West Coast has the septad, right? Uh Hopkins has a center that has the pentad, right? Uh (laughs) In my little corner of of Westchester, it's the triad (laughs) because it really, it's really looking at different flavors of each one of those three arms. And I, and I tell the patients, step away from the individual names. What do you need to do, right? You have to have efficient communication between the mast cells and the nerves in the connective tissue to stay well, right? And I can tell you the research in, that we just published was showing that out of the thousand or so patients that came through our doors for suspected mast cell activation syndrome, we're only able, and this is because it's just difficult to get the data to support the mast cell dysfunction. And there's a little bit of a difference of opinion, there are different circles of thought. So I'm going to pull in my role with the American Academy of Asthmology and Menology, who also is closely aligned to the Mastocytosis Society and the World Health Organization's mast cell disorders, is mast cell activation disorders just tells me that the mast cells aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Out of that umbrella, you have mast cell activation syndrome, which means that at least two organ systems are involved. That's the only difference that I see, right? And then you respond to medications that are known to target mast cells. Doesn't cure you, but you at least feel better. Like you take famotidine and your stomach's better, which is the original paper that came out of uh, Brigham and Women, where you had patients in an IBS clinic for seven years, right? And all of a sudden they're taking Linzess and whatnot, and then you put them on Zyrtec and Pepsid and they're much, much better, wow. right? But that's only a diagnosis. That doesn't tell me why your mast cells are misbehaving, right? And then it's important to have data, but that does not stop me from treating you. So in our studies, out of those thousand patients, I would say 45% had evidence that of either hypermobile spectrum disorder or, or hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. 
we found that you know nearly half had mast cell dysfunction, 10% had mantle binding lectin deficiency, 15 had idiopathic CD4 lymphocytopenia, and numerous antibody deficiencies. And we know, so the immunologist hat tells me that mast cells can misbehave if you have too much antibody, too much of the wrong antibody, or too little, right? Because again, it's the receptors. Those receptors tell the mast cells what chemicals to release. So when it comes to evaluating patients that come through, and this speaks to your practice and also speaks to what other practices need to embrace, you have to kind of step out of your corner of the sandbox mm -hmm. and realize that each one of these organ systems are talking to each other. We also need to talk to each other from our various specialties, and that's not happening. And people are th falling through the cracks because everybody's focusing on, well, this is a mast cell problem. I'm like, well, the mast cells ain't doing this by themselves. <laughs> and this is a connective tissue problem. I'm like, well, something's causing the connective tissue, you know, because it's, it's not inanimate, but it definitely relies on the machinery that keeps it healthy. And the nerves, in my opinion, get caught in the crossfire. Really, you know, if you're loosey-goosey, the nerves are like sitting here and you're loosey-goosey, they're getting physically traumatized. Like that cervical spine, yeah. there's a really big nerve that gets impacted by the cervical spine, the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And they've shown in animal studies and in humans, if you're able to improve the regulation of the vagus nerve, you can induce tolerance. Mm right? Physical exercise, stabilizing the neck. What happens? All of a sudden, they, they're starting to tolerate foods. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, so I, I, I think what we need is a multidiscipline. We're, we're just like we have for cancer. And this is what's so frustrating. This is what I see as the unmet need. We don't ask questions outside of our narrow focus, mm -hmm. you know, not it. And this is a problem in the paper I shared with you from Francis Peabody is with modern medicine, we have a tendency to stop after our testing has ruled out a disease as opposed to figuring out what the truth is behind their, the patient's symptoms. Even if you don't know it's a name, you can continue to inquire. I mean, what I'm sharing with you now, the boy that, that put my eyes to this was, I was the 11th allergist <clears throat> that he had seen by the time he was four years old, you know, and he had been seen by at least 20 other physicians, still hiving, still having anaphylaxis and asthma, can't go to school or because he's just the, any environment other than his home was like danger, danger. And I just sat there and listened. And I, I saw that he was tall, his brother was tall, his mom was tall. I'm like, looks familiar and you know that was my re first revisit to Ehlers-Danlos before you know my medical boards 10 years ago which was a question like Ehlers-Danlos uh oh <laughs> but then you had to you you know then if you see Ehlers-Danlos we need to start screening for neurological dysfunction and so I would think no matter what area you're coming from you need to screen for immune dysfunction and there are different flavors of mass activation disorders. You need to screen for connective tissue disorders. And Ehlers-Danlos isn't the only one that causes this triad to happen. Mm -hmm. I have two patients that have Gaucher's disease. I have Marfan's. You know, again, abnormalities in the connective tissue is going to impact the nerves and the mast cells. And, you know, neurologists have been recognizing for a long time, people are complaining about hypersensitivity disorders, as you said, and the allergy testing isn't giving an answer. Yeah, the, so uh, those IgE tests are the typically skin tests. And yeah. I don't even do it anymore. It's not worth it. 
it's not worth it. I mean, and first of all, by the time they see me, they've already had it done like five different times. So I'm just yeah. like, I'm not going to repeat the test. Save your money. So again, we go back in that Francis Peabody article that you talked about um, is from a lecture given at Harvard, October 10th, 1926. 1926. And then it was published in JAMA in 1927. You sent this to me and I'm so grateful because it really talks about, it's a really fascinating look. And it really says the treatment of a disease may be entirely impersonal. The care of a patient must be completely personal. So this is, we're back to the subjective piece. Right. And the fact that practitioners, we're not even called practitioners anymore. We're called providers have a tendency to put tests ahead of the patient's story. And, you know, one physician basically described the way we deliver medicine now, or healthcare, I can't say it's medicine, is, you know, this is a great article called None of the Above. (laughs) And, you know, after you rule out really bad things, the patient is no longer interesting, and you move on. And there's no continuity of care. Like, uh, you know, my practice, I live and work in, in Westchester. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not uncommon. I had a patient of mine say, I saw you walking your dogs. I'm like, oh, I say hi next time. <laughs> you know, we're so removed from the communities that we work with. Um, and then you're going to wonder that what investment does that practitioner have? And a lot of practitioners really try, but after a while, the pressures by insurance companies or the institutions that they work for don't allow you as one of my patients said, time to think, time to listen and think, appreciate how this is impacting their ability to work or interact with family members. And if you listen, as Osler said a long time ago, the patient will tell you what's wrong with them. And what was fascinating is what caught my eye. And I, and it's just, and one of the reasons I came across that article, I was at my ophthalmologist's office. He was running late, which I don't mind because that's the only time I have for myself. And he had a copy of the, of, of Francis Peabody's lecture on his, on the waiting table. And what caught my eye was uh, the section about uh, nothing the matter with them. Mm-hmm. And it was a woman who quote unquote suffered at the hands of many a doctor. Mm-hmm. with numerous diets and tonics who goes into a, a Boston hospital and they said, we're going to fix you. We're going to figure out we have the most modern technology. We're going to fix you. And they run the same tests that the community practitioners did and the tests are completely normal. And the intern talks to the attending physician. He's like, I did all this work and there's nothing the matter with her. Right. And he's like, look, we got other people on the ward that are much sicker. You need to get her out. And so they go to her. She said, we've done the most modern technology. We really can't figure out why you can't eat this. So here's a medicine for you. And uh, God be with you. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, it's 1926. What do you you have that you can be so arrogant on what this person has or doesn't have? Yes. Right. So thank God she doesn't have a tumor. Yeah. Thank God she doesn't have a rip roaring, you know, infection, but yes. she's still not well. Yes. And, and unfortunately, in this country, we have a tendency to assign blame to the patient before we say we just don't know. And what does that look like? Non-psychiatrists are the biggest prescribers of uh, antipsychotic medications, anxiety, sleep pills. Right. And then you have the rise of factitious disorders. 
Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you in the Ehlers-Danlos population, there was a paper done by uh, Bulbina who showed that 60% of them had been labeled with either somatic disorder, hypochondriasis, Munchausen, malingering. And in, in my world, we had a condition called, it's now called hereditary angioedema, which was very prevalent in women. Before that, it was called hereditary neurotic angioedema. They only wow. dropped the name, they only dropped the name maybe 15 years ago. Wow. So we have a tendency to think someone is crazy, even though in this country, medical misdiagnosis is a heck of a lot more common than us not knowing that we just don't know. And I think by the time they come to you or I, patients are willing to accept, let me just find somebody who's willing and able to work with me. And you've written a great paper which is your article. Misdiagnosis happens. Medical gaslighting should not. I just think you got to give patients the benefit of the doubt. If if it's a choice of being in the hospital or being in my office or enjoying their family or enjoying a meal, I think they rather do a little better. (laughs) Um, But right now, you know, there's been a movement and it's not to say that there aren't patients who have secondary gain in being ill. But I think that's a lot more rare compared to that we just don't know yet. And it's disappointing to see organizations formalize medical abuse, uh, especially in the pediatric population. When I know as an allergy immunology specialist, uh, pediatricians, um, as well as internists, don't even know how to manage asthma, Mm -hmm. so which is a mast cell disorder. So I know that they don't, they can't recognize and diagnose Ehlers-Danlos, mass cell activation syndrome. You know, who bends a child? <laughs> can, you, can you do this for me? <laughs> you do this for me. Yeah. I had one child, she bent her finger back this way. I'm like, okay, you can stop. You can stop yeah. now. <laughs> but, and here's the thing, not everybody who has hypermobility is sick. Yeah. But there is a higher risk for it happening. There you go. I'm showing my fancy elbow. <laughs> and so I'm as stiff as possible. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, because I remember when you went like this and I saw your hand go like, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have a lot of fun in parties now. <laughs> yeah. but, but my daughter has Ehlers-Danlos. Finding out about my daughter, I found out that my husband, my stepson, mm-hmm. all of his family have it. Mm-hmm. And she suffered for like years. Mm-hmm with misdiagnoses and the first diagnosis they typically go to is anxious as opposed to well maybe she doesn't feel well and she doesn't have the vocabulary I had a patient who came to see me um, a little while ago and he just said my whole life I've known something isn't right I don't know what it is you know and his exam was fairly benign he, he was in his mid-30s um, but lo and behold we did in vitae testing and he did you know he had an elevated biting score a hypermobility score he had um, and he's got the genetics for Euler Stanley's. Just something, and he said, it's always bothered me. And I've just been told I'm fine for the last 30 years. That's gaslighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it happens as long as, as long as it is, you know, so. So one thing I just want to go back to before we close here is mm-hmm. that tolerance is not built by avoidance. Love that. And the other thing is that the communication piece, the communication between the cells 
the triggers, our immune system, our underlying level of inflammation, as well as, you know, you've broadened it twice. You've mentioned broadening it to kind of our relationships in our life. And that, you know, goes on all levels. So like family, community, socio-political, economic, racial, uh, you know, just governmental, global right. climate. Uh-huh. Um, so I think one thing that my hope is, is that by having your voice out there, by having your work out there, by having these discussions about COVID. Our work, about, our work. Our work, our work. <laughs> it's a village. <laughs> it's a village. By doing all these things, we can develop that communication, not only within the individual's immune system for healing, but also for the larger society. Society, uh, it starts yeah. with the individual, but it's the individual and the society. Right now, I would say we are part of the medical underground railroad. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, That's a great way to put it. And, but we got to keep pushing because I know people can feel better. I do. I do. I believe that, you know. And it, it starts with, you know, what was that, Michael Jackson? Yeah. Look in the mirror first and see what <laughs> I'm doing and making sure that I'm not going to be part of the problem. That's one. Um, and then let me see what I can do to be part of the solution. And so that includes having conversations like this. I look forward to these type of things because I learn and, you know, we're seeing overlapping things, right? And yeah. I've gained so much just hearing patient stories and hearing provider practitioners stories from a different vantage point. And I think we've been given the tools. I think we've been given the tools to deal with, with the current pandemic. We have. And it starts with, you know, being kind to one's neighbor, really. Like, wear your mask, stay six feet, and, and say hello to people. Just don't ignore them. Even if they're on the street, homeless, acknowledge, say hello. They're not going to jump at you. <laughs> they just want to be acknowledged. Their humanity wants to be acknowledged. And I think if whatever your faith system or belief system is, if we don't work together, we're going to sink. And I honestly believe most people, some like, they're just not given the vocabulary on how to engage with other practitioners. They've not been given um, the vocabulary to recognize what's in them. I mean, the delay in diagnosis boils down to, well, what does the person know? What does the pra- general practitioner know? And does a general practitioner know when they should stay with them and when they should refer out? And they should not be afraid of the referring of the consultant to steal the patient. I have no, I'm like, please go back. I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about the immune system all day long, but we need to share our knowledge on how to screen. Like what you're doing is hardly done, especially in the amplified pain clinics. They don't believe that Ehlers-Danlos can be an increased risk factor. Well, hopefully we can change that. <laughs> <laughs> This has been a phenomenal conversation. I, I look forward to listening to other the podcasts. I have them saved, but I have, <laughs> uh, you know, life got in the way this week. But yeah, yeah. To. Well, I, you know, we're we just keep making them, and they're a total thrill for me to make. And this has been just a really great way to start my day. And I really appreciate um, all your time and your and your expertise. Same here. Same here. Awesome. So I wish you peace. Thank you. Be with you and your family. Um, may may the climate be still for a little bit so you can rest and uh, enjoy the day as well. And I look forward to further communication Thank and exchange. You. Thank you. All right. Thank you all today, all to our listeners um, with Dr. Ann Maitland. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
You can get more information about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Be sure to share this show with your friends and we welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. So thank you for listening and see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliot Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.